This podcast is produced by EnergeticCity.ca, your only local and independent news in Northeast BC. To support local news and this podcast, go to EnergeticCity.ca slash join to find out more. This podcast was recorded on traditional Denizal land. Hello, hello, welcome to Before the Peace. I'm Trey Lopashinsky. This month's episode features a returning guest, Doig River First Nation Councillor Gary Oker. This is actually the first of a two-part episode we have on Gary, specifically on his life. When we had Gary on in the first episode of Before the Peace, we mainly just talked about the history of the Deneza, the Beaver people, and didn't actually delve into his journey, into Gary. And the reason we had Gary on to start the podcast and why we are having him on again is because of what he has accomplished in the community. And let's be honest, in almost every picture of an important event in the peace, or more specifically the Fort St. John area, you see Gary. You, most people know who Gary Oker is. So we want to delve more into who Gary Oker is. Where did he come from? Now, you know, he's a very well-known leader in the peace region, in my opinion. His resume is way too huge for me to fully list off, but currently he is in his second term as counselor of Doig River First Nation. He's previously served as Doig River Program Director from 1999 to 2001, uh, was a chief from 2001 to 2005. He's also a Doig River drummer, and a lot of what he focuses on with Doig is, is culture, from events to initiatives. Gary takes a major focus in retaining beaver language and developing a Dreamer's Philosophies Museum, according to the Doig River website. And he really, really, really is trying to promote that cultural pride and aspires for his community to achieve self-sufficiency, just like a lot of the other counselors and Doig River as a whole, its membership. They want to be self-sufficient. They want to keep their pride. They want to make sure that their language doesn't die. And he's just a piece of that, a driving force of that, along with the rest of the membership who are helping out with that as well, which is just really cool to hear his perspective on on how things are going in the peace region and with Doig in general. One thing I discovered about Gary that I didn't really know uh, was how much art and music has impacted his life. Prior conversations with him, it always gets brought up, and I thought of it just as like a hobby, you know, he... He's able to do this on his spare time. This is what keeps him calm. This is what keeps him centered. But going to his house and seeing kind of his art room, there's canvases everywhere with tons of arts. There's instruments everywhere. He has recording equipment everywhere. He had stacks of papers to show me from transcripts, um, from prior documents, whether it be court cases or just things that he's created. And one of them was actually a script for an animated movie about Saya, a cultural hero of the beaver tribe that he just introduced me to. I, I knew nothing about this beforehand and I felt it was just super, super interesting. Um, Saya is described as a heroic monster slayer and a friend to mankind. Though there are some beaver stories I read online that are a little bit more humorous in nature, Gary very much when he talks about Saya and even looking at um, some of the pages to his scripts and the images is very much a heroic figure. To start off this episode, uh, Gary actually talks about Saya uh, in a bit while reading a passage from writer Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces 
which Gary has used as almost an inspiration for his journey as I take it. And we thought it would be really cool for him to read this passage while kind of connecting it to his life, which you will see we tried to do here in the beginning of the episode. And I, I thought it was really cool. He pulls influence from a lot of different things, a lot of different people, and it's just his whole journey is is crazy. Um, another huge thing that I discovered about Gary, which we talk about almost right off the bat, is him becoming a fashion designer, going to school and then working with La Chateau in, in Montreal and working with a leather company and designing clothes, which is something that has never come up and I just found it to be so interesting to see that he's worn so many hats and done so many different things in his life. All right, I'm done talking about the episode. I don't want to give too much away. I don't want to spoil too much. You got to listen to it for yourself. But before I get into that, if you have any program ideas, any guests that you want me to be talking to, any stories that you want the public to listen to, someone specifically that can tell those stories on this podcast, make sure you reach out to us on Instagram at before the peace and before the peace underscore on Twitter, or you can hit me up on before the peace at energeticcity.ca or before the peace at moosefm.ca. Also, this podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of Troyer Ventures. Troyer has been serving the community and the energy industry with taken vac trucks since 2000. They are built on the principles of hard work, service, and community, and they are proud to offer the financial support to make this program possible. Thank you so much to Troyer Ventures. Now, let's get into this episode, part one of a two-part, I don't want to call it series, two-part episode with Dwight River First Nation counselor, Gary Oker. Hope you enjoy. It's been a while since uh, we know, got together here. I know, it's <laughs> close to two years, Gary. It's, it's, I'm glad to have you back on the episode for sure. Um, <laughs> and I, yeah, it was so funny, like before... Uh, Jenna left the podcast. We had the conversation of like, who should we have back on? And the first thing we said was, well, we need Gary because <laughs> there's so much has changed since we talked to him. And then we're, we're starting to talk more and we're like, hey, we didn't actually talk to Gary about Gary. We didn't talk about your upbringing, about your life. Mainly, we just talked about the history of the Dene and the history of the Beaver people and, and Saqua and everything like that. Like, obviously... Um, topics that are very important, but we didn't actually learn too much about you, and you're such an interesting guy. Um, and then we were just chatting here uh, before we started recording about this passage that you want to read that kind of, um, I guess, kind of aligns with your journey, I, I guess we can say, or how would you put it? What What does this passage mean to you? Yeah, the, the passage, I'm uh, going to read parts of it, and then we can talk about it. But mm -hmm. it's uh, it, it's called The Hero with Thousand Faces. And it was uh, written by Joseph Campbell, who I really admire as a author. And he's written many, many books on uh, the mono myths and mythologies of uh, people all over the world. And the, the monomyth that he uh, understands and talks about is, is the hero begins in the ordinary world, meaning that your community or your home, where you come from, and they receive a call to enter this unknown world beyond where they come from or their territory or their, 
their place of living to these strange things and that happens and, and events. And for me, I was, you know, I grew up around Peterson Crossing in Rose Prairie by Doig <clears throat> River First Nations area there. And I've always had this calling that I want to see the world. Similar to the context around Saya. So Saya is the one that really kind of uh, inspired me because Saya lived in a world of bow and arrow days of in the beaver stories. So, and then the context around that is that if the heroes accepts the call to enter this strange world, whatever that is, and in my case, it was the city because I never been to the city, grew up way out in the country and... No, no running water, no electricity, just basically surviving out in the world with uh, the hunters and gatherers of my ancestors. So the hero then takes that, and if he does, faces the tasks and trails, and uh, either alone, most of the time alone, or with assistance of people that he meets. So then if you look at some of the character stories that I've... Um, you know, created out of the storyline. We have Mosquito Man and Star Sisters and Beaver Woman and all that. <clears throat> They're the kind of the assistants, the, these characters that you meet. So at at that point, it's, it's a most intense. That means you really got to get to face your fears. Um, so the hero must survive these severe challenges such as starvation, because you got no food, and then how do you how do you overcome that, and what do you what do you do to get that? So, for us, it was either in the, traditionally it was the young boys sent off on a vision quest into the forest, and hopefully they get to meet uh, an animal of great powers that could help them overcome these tribulations of life, and or just number one experience be alone. Mm-hmm to overcome yourself. And most of the time when people do that, they get afraid. So traditional stories of our ancestors talk about the shadow, it's like your shadow. So your shadow is on the, your kind of, call it your negative side or your, your other side, you're not or you're on deep consciousness or mm-hmm. something like this. So then you have to face it to come to terms with who you are. And a lot of times when you are alone, the first time of your life, you're all alone, it's a pretty scary place, especially when you're young and you don't know what's happening. So you just like, either you run away from it or you face it. Mm -hmm. So in my case, I faced it. I overcome a lot of those fears. And so those are the severe challenges that may, uh, you know, face... So often they, they're helped by earning this things or learning something from somebody and somebody teaches you and come into your path and say, hey, you know, I need some help for that. Um, you, you can either say no or you can help out. I've always had the tendency to help out people if they need help. Mm-hmm. Because when I was a really young little boy, I was told stories of grandpa and uh, they told stories about these young uh, Taya that on a journey, and there's always somebody that comes that needs help. That means help people, right? So in the context of that, 
in the modern world, when we think about that, you always try to lend a helping hand, right? Because you just never know what that person is going to do. Down the road, that person may be a valuable person that you helped out in the time of their need, and then they're going to help you when you need it. So that there's a cycle in that storyline. So then, so if the hero survives, the heroes then will receive a gift, a boom, something. So the hero then must decide to whether to return to this ordinary world with this gift, or if a hero decides not to return, he often faces the challenge of return to that journey. So returning back to the community is also the integration of back to the community with these new knowledge and you have different behaviors and you think different and sometimes people don't get accepted back that easy. You've got to earn that respect by doing the things that, mm-hmm. that shows that you are there for the people. So if the hero is then successful in returning this uh, boom or this gift, he, he, that may be used to improve the world or the community, the family. So these stories are, are uh, very common, you know, in the world. So the hero's journey, you know, the Moses on a journey, Buddha, uh, Christ, Jesus on a journey to, mm-hmm. right? For, um, so those are the same kind of structures where the hero has to go on the journey and find something. So Joseph Campbell there he describes 17 stages of the steps or journeys. Very few myths contains all of them. Uh, some myths contains parts of the stages, while others are few of them. But they all kind of come to the point where there's a departure. There is a separation from family and friends, and there's the initiation to manhood. There's initiation to something. And then there's a return. So the departure deals with the hero venturing off into some, some place and he's been initiated into, into something. And then, then the hero deals with various adventures along the way, returns home with this knowledge and power that is uh, required to the journey. So the monolithic structures can be found in many popular books today. You can see like Star Wars, mm-hmm. The Matrix, the Harry, po- the Harry Potter series. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> so that kind of guided me in, in a way that I could make sense of the world with that. Because <clears throat> the stories I was told when I was a young boy about Saya and the many adventures he, he had to encounter to uh, learn something. Sometimes it's just a wise old man walking down the street and then he loan him a dollar or something. And then a few years later down the road you needed uh, help from somebody and there he was, right? Ready to help you. He's ready to help you. So that, that is what guided me on my journey of life. Those kind of talk about it. Kind of knowing, um, you know, roughly your path it kind of makes sense to me why this this passage um means so much to you or or why you follow it because from my understanding you know um you went so your your journey of leaving was was to the city that was was that specifically montreal on the east coast because i know you were in montreal for a bit right um that was just in cities in general like where did you travel to once you you left um Peterson Crossing, once you left Doik, where where did you go? Where did that journey take you before you came back? 
Well, I started off here when I left, uh, the, when I made a decision, I was laying on the top of the hill one day getting wood for grandma. And then I taking, taking a break in a hot summer day, laying on top of this hill, looking up the sky, I see a plane flying over. And I just looked at this and I say, where is that going? And it really caught my imagination. So on the way down that hill, I decided I'm going to go and explore. <laughs> it was that moment that I think it was 16, 17. Yeah. I just said, I got to go and explore the world. But how am I going to do that? That was the big question in my mind. How am I going to do that? Well, I guess I need some money, so I better go find, find a job. And even before that, you know, we used to have jo small little jobs, uh, you know, for local farmers, grandma, and then we'll pick roots and rocks and stuff like that for farmers and in exchange for a few dollars and some vegetables and things like that. And my first job there was, uh, you know, packing a bunch of things like the logs and everything. I was a small little guy, but I was really determined to make a little bit of money. 25 cents an hour. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so I made a few dollars, and of course, and then that gave me the sense of, okay, freedom, that I could be able to make this and go to work, and I really wanted to work. So one of my first job at 15 and a half was um, horse wrangler. I was a horse wrangler up in the mountains for uh, Red Sorensen. Yeah, he was a big outfitter. I had to look after 22 head of horses. Oh, wow. And my job was to go round them up in the morning, help saddle it up and make the get the wood and fire going for the hunters and just take care of the camp. So I had a really good sense of um, overcoming my fears even at that time because going out and into the mountains and you know, all you have is a little knife and you're tracking horses. There's all kinds of animals out there, but <clears throat> it was pretty scary at times because knowing that there's bear tracks and fresh mm -hmm. signs of bears around, <clears throat> so that I would just make lots of noise as I made, <laughs> made my way looking for these horses. Yeah, and and of course, like you know, growing up around here, you get to do all kinds of different things. Mm -hmm. You know, like uh, that was one of them, horse wrangler and. Because I was going to ask, so that's your experience before that job was obviously just growing up. You were doing that as well with your families or just the other farmers helping them out around? Um, yeah, that's, that's that was one of the things where we uh, made a little bit of money doing that. Mm. Um, but of course, you know, there's um, pipelining and there's mm -hmm. drilling rigs. And I, got, I got involved with that forestry when I was uh, 16, 17, I think I was uh, out there working as a bucker and uh, skater operator and doing a lot of work. And then finally went up into uh, working in a sawmill. So I did a lot of different pieces in and out, trying to find my way around. Yeah. While picking up knowledge from these different um, expertise, I guess you would say, these different jobs as well. Yes, and also just different characters. Mm, okay. And to me, I always looked at them as characters or story. Mm -hmm. Okay, these guys coming into my life, what kind of character was he? So I always <laughs> made a comparison to <laughs> those traditional stories and say, I wonder what what he he's like in that. So 
What am I going to learn? I always had an open mind mm -hmm. to learn something. And so then you're doing all these jobs. You're talking 15, 16. Um, at what point did you have enough money that you decided to leave? Um, I think I was around 18, 17 and a half, 18. So you're doing all these jobs from 15 to 18, right? Yeah. You're kind of, I'm assuming, around the region, kind of helping yeah. out, doing these different things. Then 18, what was your plan? Where did where did you go? What was your what was your vision for leaving and for the future for yourself? Did you have a plan at that point, or was it just a one way? Hey, I'm going to go to this place, and let's see what happens. I've always kind of had an idea that I wanted to ensure that I don't forget my upbringing with my grandparents. Mm -hmm. I wanted to bring something, so I asked grandma to make me something, a jacket. So she made me a Musai jacket, and then I went, Then after that I went to mom and I said, hey mom, can you make me a pair of pants to go with this? <laughs> so I was always around this creation yeah. of things, you know. Yeah. Uh, they, were, they were so creative all the time, making things and using, reusing things. So I had this kind of instinct Distinctive knowledge about mm -hmm. how to make things, mm -hmm. and with that, I I took off and said, "Yeah, uh, I'm gonna go into the city and maybe I'll become a designer or something," uh, because I started to look into what is possible mm -hmm. with the kind of skills that I had. So, with a little bit of money that I had, I think I had about four hundred dollars or something by the time I'm ready was ready to go. And at that time, what year is that? I'm assuming that was like enough so you could go travel. Well, back in the day, that was a lot of money. Yeah, I was going to say, that <laughs> That seems like it would be a lot of money back then <laughs> for the time frame. Yeah, then I took, a, I, I made my way to Prince George and stayed with a friend of mine. And then from there, he dropped me off. And then I hitchhiked to Jasper. And then uh, I got dropped off in the middle of, uh, in the, right in the middle be between um, Prince George and Jasper, in the middle of nowhere. Okay. <laughs> I, I must have walked for hours. Oh, wow. That must have <laughs> yeah. hurt your feet. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hungry and yeah. and uh, just, I didn't know what I, I was just going on this journey and walking. Mm. Why did he just drop you off? Did you want to be dropped off or did he just drop you off? No, because he was going somewhere else. Oh, so he's like, well, if you want to go if here, you're yeah, going to have to. Yeah, I'm only going oh, okay. to here. So okay, that makes sense. I don't know. I don't know where he went. But <laughs> there I was in the middle of nowhere and just walking. And finally I got picked up and dropped off at in Banff and stayed overnight and took a train, my first time on a train. Oh, wow. To Edmonton. So that's where I kind of started, Edmonton, Alberta. Oh, it was Edmonton. Yeah. Okay. So then I uh, start, you know, doing, you know, washing dishes and everything, just anything just to get myself established. Mm -hmm. So then I kept walking by this store and they had it with a help wanted on it. It was a big boutique. I was very interested in style and clothing and at that time. And does that come from your grandma and your mom yes. and seeing them create? Okay. Yeah, that's where it came from. And I was, okay, I wonder how I could mix that traditional knowledge it was funny, so one day I finally got the courage to uh, go in there and say, hey, I'm interested in that job. What do you got? As it turns out, it was a sales job for selling fashions, ladies' fashions. I said, well, okay, interesting. I told the lady, I said, yeah, I'm going to be a designer one day, so I want to learn about the business. What are, we what are we doing here? 
So is that while we're selling women's clothing? Have you ever sold anything? I says, nope, I never sold anything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, but I'm willing to learn and try it. And yeah, it wasn't long uh, long after that I um, they hired me, and within a month I was the top salesman. Oh, that's crazy! And I'm assuming at that time a male in a ladies' boutique store probably wasn't you know, looked at, you know, there were probably a lot of people looking at it negatively, right? But how did you, would you agree? Did you have to kind of like get, like ignore that noise essentially? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, I think there was, uh, you know, I come from, a, you know, the peace country where, yeah. you know, macho guys. Yeah, you know? yeah, that's what I mean, like that masculinity. <laughs> yeah. I mean, especially in that time, I would assume that, that people would be like, what the heck, you work at a, a ladies' boutique? But for you, that was part of the journey you were saying you saw the sign and then you went to them saying you wanted to be a designer so this has always been this at that point this that had always been something that you wanted to do was be a designer well, or it was something you thought you might want to do yeah i okay. was exploring it I okay was, i wasn't i was like just dead trying, set on it you were like this might be something this might be something okay. an area that might fit in the cultural context with mm-hmm. what i want to do and then uh but of course, uh, you know, I did it for you know a couple of years, and then I had to go back to the drilling rigs again. Yeah, get some more money. <laughs> get more money. Yeah, because <laughs> you know I wasn't making big money, but it was enough to survive on, and basically that was it in in the city life. But I said, oh, this is this is kind of not not the kind of life that I want to have, mm-hmm. basically. So I went back to the drilling rigs for a couple couple more years. So obviously going there back in the day working on the drilling rigs, you can make a lot of money in yeah. like six months. Yeah. Right? So, so well, I... Sorry, was that around the Edmonton area or was that back here in the Peace um, Country? It was a P, a Grand Prairie area. Okay. So you weren't definitely back home. You were still away yeah, from home at this point. still okay. trying to figure out what to do. Okay. Yeah. So by the time I was 21, it took me that long to figure out that, okay. Meanwhile, I had to go back to school because uh, once I found out that I... I needed to, you know, at least have grade 12. And then, I, you know, I had to go to work at grade 10 mm. and dropped out of school back then. Back in the day, everybody does that, go mm. to work. Yeah, <laughs> to get the money, yeah. You got to get, if you don't have money, you got to go to work, right? Mm-hmm. So by the time I was 21, I finally got, went back to do some upgrading and that type of thing at Edmonton and Prince George. I went back to Prince George too. So I was going back and forth through that part to trying to get my education up. Mm-hmm. enough to get into the college. So then I figured out that there was a, a good college in, in Kingston, Ontario. Okay. So that's where I went. I, I applied and I got in and was there for three years. And right after that, I was just finishing off my portfolio and stayed over an extra week after the college was open or was closed. Uh, my instructor came up and said, hey, I just got a call from Le Chateau in Montreal, and they're looking for a designer, and I just recommended you. You wanted to take that job? Oh, that's cool. <laughs> I <didn't... laughs> and I said, oh, I got nowhere to go. So <laughs> with, with very little money I had left. You're I, like, yeah, I want this I, job. I'm, I'm going. <laughs> and... I didn't know where I was going. I was just, okay, I'm going to take everything I got. So I packed up everything, patterns and clothing on my backpack and took a train to Montreal. 
walked into their office with all my things. <laughs> and they were kind of shocked. They said, well, what are you doing? And I said, I'm here for the job. <laughs> <laughs> they must have been just shocked when you got in, and that's so funny. Yeah. So, so what happened from there? Like, the, how long were you with uh, La Chateau for? I was there for a couple of years. Okay. And, and then I got hired as a leather designer because my my intent was really um, to get into leather because I was really into leather because mm. of the background. So my background always influenced my decisions. It seems going back and forth. And then I wanted to do leather design. I want to become a leather designer because I like working with leather. Mm -hmm. So then after a couple of years with Le Chateau, I uh, went and got hired as a uh, designer for a leather company. So it was Famous Leathers, that's what it's called. So I do men's and, men's and women's leather jackets and clothing. Okay. So I got to travel to Montreal or Montreal, Toronto, New York City, to, oh, wow. to all these shows. So that really expanded my capacity to say, hey, there's a lot of stuff out in the world that's really exciting. Yeah. I know you were saying, while you were a designer, you tried to bring that indigenous influence into what you were designing. How did you do that with, with the leather like the leather clothing? How, what, how did you do that, really? Well, I mean, the fashion changes all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. But true. it's really symbolic, like, uh, you know, most of it, it's really about stitching. Mm, okay. Back in the day, it was about stitching, cross-hatching his mm. stitches and fringes and those type of things. Yeah. Um, but it changes all the time, so you got to keep up with the style and colors and those yeah. kind of things. So it wasn't really all Indigenous no. Uh, influences it was just but at times you tried to bring it in when you could and absolutely. incorporate it okay yeah. okay absolutely so you're working with this leather company you said was that for a couple of years as well yeah you, you got to travel montreal toronto new york as you were saying um what happens like how long were you doing that for for, for this leather company well, I, I was I was basically out there in the east for about four years. Four years, four or five okay. years. And then was there a point in between before you came back that you did something else, or what happened after that? No, at that point, um, I think it was hot summer day, traveling in these uh, subways, packed like sardines, <laughs> and it was just it was it was. It caught up to me, and I said, wow, I'm just a, a facing thousands of people. Mm -hmm. And I felt, well, I wonder what my people are doing. So back in the day, we didn't have phones or anything. I couldn't phone back home. Nobody had access to phone unless it was a, one of those old party lines that you... <laughs> um, so, but I was getting kind of lonely, and I was trying to figure out what more can I do here, mm -hmm. right? And I kind of sense the the context there that I asked for a label because at that time, all the designers wants a label and a percentage of what they make, you know, what they design. I asked for that and the guy said, okay, I'll think about it. So after two weeks later, he was still thinking about it. So I said, it's okay. I'm just going to go. I need to go home for a while, see what happens. So uh, I came back, and uh, the the chiefs at that time were really receptive to me coming back. And this, you know, here's somebody that went out there and got some education and some skills, and 
bringing, you know, trying to bring culture back and, you know, to identify. So they gave me a job as a economic development officer for the tribal council. So I started working there. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's how I got involved back into indigenous politics. So was that a huge switch for the past couple of years, becoming a fashion designer in these big cities to then come back home and really just kind of be... I'm assuming it was right away you were offered this position, so you're kind of kind of thrown in the deep end of the, the inner workings of the First Nation, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't long before I got back and I got hired because, you know, at that time the tribal council was just getting moving and mm-hmm. they really want to bring their own membership back in and kind of work and, you know, talk about the treaty rights and our claims that, as we know now, after 25 years yeah. later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So twenty, it was a long journey to get back to you know where we should be. So, but it started back in that time. But at the same time, you know, there was a lot of people, pretty styling. You know, mm-hmm. there was a lot of cowboy influences yeah. and and fringes and cowboy hats and all kinds of things. So I kind of fit in kind of already with the styling and so I did that a few years and then I was I was recruited to sit on a board, a tourism board. Uh, to uh, to bring in indigenous influence into the decision making of tourism um, along the Alaska Highway, and there was different uh, agendas happening at that time. Okay, what uh, y- what year was this? Do you remember? Oh, I can't remember exactly. No? Okay, but <laughs> I'm assuming this is around probably the 90s, maybe. Yeah, 80s, 80, 80s, 80, 80, 80, 85, or okay. something like that. Okay, and. Um, so this uh, Mac Taylor was sitting on it, and he was running a um, or, an organization called Enterprise Center in Dawson Creek. Okay. And it was really dealing with students and entrepreneurship. So a lot of the kids that were in t- grade 10, 11, and 12 knew, uh, had an al- alternative program or a, um, a program that they can take in entrepreneurship as part of their credits. Mm-hmm. So he asked me if I ever taught. And I said, well, I did have an experience working during my second year in college, working in a summer camp in Northern Ontario. And there I was teaching craft making with all these kids that came to summer camp. So that's the only experience I've had in teaching. So they said, yeah, we're there, uh, with your knowledge and your experience in design, and I think it's an opportunity that you can do something for the indigenous kids because they were having challenges keeping them in the school. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, well, let's talk about it. So we spent, you know, about three months talking about it, having breakfast meetings and planning it out, what we can actually do. So then uh, at that time, after three months, they said, okay, it's time to meet the, uh, the superintendent. So they set up a meeting and first meeting I met with Charlie Parslow and he was a superintendent of the school and he said uh, well, what do I thought about indigenous education and I said what, are the, what indigenous education <laughs> it's not working yeah. and I said yeah that's why we need you he says and I said uh, oh would you like to come and work for us and I said okay, well, okay I'll be interested but you know there's three conditions first of all you got to pay me really well <laughs> Second, you got to give me all the resources I need to make it happen. Mm-hmm. And then you back me up 100%. And he stood up and shook my hand. And from that moment on, we spent, I spent eight years building this 
uh, fashion design and cultural study program for the school district 59. Yeah, from 1990 to 1998, I have here. Yeah. And so your the program was design and cultural study. Yeah. So the focus there was not only learning the culture. What was the design aspect of it? I guess is my question. Yeah, the design aspect was to really make their traditional outfits. Mm, okay. So I one of the contexts around the students learning about their history, culture, is to go to these powwows and mm. learn about. Okay, look at their outfits mm. here. How can you, you know, what kind of designer or d- dancer you want to be, and then what kind of outfit did you want to make? So that was part of their research project that they had to do. And then they would like look at other items as well. I'm assuming like ribbon skirts and all that. All of it. Okay. It, it was part of their social study class okay. where they had to study um, traditional outfits and what's happening today, how they're integrating all these ideas. And then they would formulate their own design. And then they have to make the patterns, get the materials, and basically create it. And then learn how to do the dance. So out of that, we formulated uh, a group called Northern Shadow Dancers. Okay. So this this then group became the core of the program where it's entrepreneurial, it's culture, and then uh, at the same time, it's... uh, innovative and creative mm-hmm. so especially for that time i that, would say that yeah. time period there wasn't much programming going on mm-hmm. for indigenous uh, kids so but this became the real hub for a lot of the kids in dawson creek and because they get the chance to travel and do presentations in different communities so at the end of the day they they became famous we went to uh, france big international folk festival germany for a big horse show uh Performed at the PE for a couple of years in a row. Oh, wow. And traveled all through Western Canada just performing in schools about what they are, were learning and developing about their, who they are. So, for that eight years, <clears throat> your main focus was the program, essentially? Yeah, that was my complete focus. I, I do want to go back a bit. And, you know, when you're coming back after a couple of years, uh, on your journey, you know, going to Edmonton, going to all these big cities, becoming a fashion designer, to then come back, what was the reception like? Like, yes, you did get that job, um, you know, with with Doig pretty quickly, but w- what was the initial reception like from your family? Because you hadn't, I'm assuming, been in touch with them for a while. Uh, I, I'm guessing there might be letters at that time, but really they hadn't heard from you or seen you in a while. What was that reception like when you came back into the community? Well, the first time I came back and went to see Grandma, she looked at me and just started crying. <laughs> so she said, I thought you died. Oh. She thought I was gone, and she was so happy that, that I came back. So... I had those moments like that mm-hmm. where uh, people thought I was disappeared somewhere, <laughs> probably passed away somewhere. Or, and yeah, there was no communication. There were, mm-hmm. We had no phone, nothing. So uh, it was it was challenging to keep in touch with people. Was it emotional for your family when you left? Um, I just decided to go. Mm-hmm. You know, um, at that time I said, okay, I gotta go and find out what's happening. I'm sure they were wondering what's happening. Mm-hmm. Where did he go? You know. But like growing up, it's like you don't just people don't just randomly gain an interest in in arts and all these things. Like 
right now, currently, just for you listeners out there, I'm sitting in Gary Oker's. I guess this would be called your your art room. This is kind of what most people would be call call a man cave, but yours is full of art. You have these like kind of their vision boards, but we describe them more as like journal boards, like guiding your life because you're a visual person. You have tons of artwork everywhere, um, instruments all over the place, like. Growing up before you at 15, when you were on that hill, prior to that, was this incorporated in your life with the music and the art? Like, were you that type of person to the point where before you left, your um, your family was like, oh, yeah, it makes sense that he wants to go out on this journey. Does that make sense? Like, who you are now being this person of many different hats, many different interests, were you like that as a kid to the point where your family was like yeah, no, he needs to go out there. Like, he's going to go out there. He he has it in him. There's this burning passion for him to go explore. Was that was that kind of the, I guess, thought process for your family as to why they're, they might not have shown as much emotion to you? You didn't say they showed emotion, so that's what I'm just assuming, that they were like, okay, well, Gary wants to go. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I was always considered the oddball, you know? <laughs> yeah, he's... He's always up to something, yeah. you know, and I, I would assume that they would have just thought that, okay, he's he went somewhere. Yeah, he's going somewhere. Yeah, yeah. he's going somewhere to find out, but, you know, something, I don't know. So, so sorry, did they know you were leaving, Gary, or did you just go? No. Um, well, even at that time, 13, 14 years yeah. old, I was always going in and out. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I was, you know, I, I had to figure out what mm. to do in life, right, mm-hmm. and I think the main thing was that we were pretty poor, so mm-hmm. I had to always find a job. Mm-hmm. I always had to do something, so I'm sure they just said, well, he's probably got a job somewhere. And he's just doing something yeah. somewhere. Okay. So Okay, so you, you come back. You um, Now let's, let's jump back into what we were talking about with the design and cultural study program. So eight years of that, and you said you were mainly just focusing on the program. Um, were you still where were you living when you came back? Were you living in Doig in the Doig area? Were you where were you living at that time? Did you live in Dawson Creek because of the program? Well, I moved to Dawson after okay. I got that job, but okay. I, I was living in Fort St. John. Okay. Yeah. And then traveling to different places around here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then so um nineteen ninety eight uh, you stopped doing the program. What um, what happened? Isn't that around the time you became chief? No, no. No, okay. No, no. That was uh nineteen ninety nine, um uh, former uh, late Calvin Davis, he was a chief mm-hmm. uh, for Doig, and and he said uh, he asked me, "Oh yeah, uh, I, I met him at the Dawson Creek Rodeo." Okay. And we we're just kind of hanging out, and he said, "You know, uh, we need some help with programming, and I see what you've done. You you know how to run a program, so why don't you come back work for our community? We need some help." So basically the chief invited me back to the community to help them. So I became a programs director. Okay. Yeah. So for four years, I was a programs director. And then after that, I got elected as chief. And that was, so that was in 2003, 2004-ish? Yeah. Okay. And then you were chief for, for how long? Uh, two terms. Two terms? Yeah. So um, when you came back uh, as the program director, what was that feeling like, right? Like you... At that point, you've your journey is all over the place. Like you're you're doing so much, you're still trying to find yourself. But now you're home, 
right? And you you said, even reading off that passage from Joseph Campbell, um, talking about that hero's journey of, of getting something and coming back. When you came back, did you have that gift yet? Or did it take, you know, some more, um, I guess, some more activity, some more journey, or continuing your journey in the region before you can bring that gift to them, I guess? Yeah, because I... Yeah, when I came back, I I was kind of confident in myself, but mm-hmm. I still really didn't know what you would be bringing. What is yeah. it that I'm bringing back? Okay, and it was just through these programming. And I think one of the the main things was about reclaiming our cultural heritage, because mm-hmm. you know, so we reflect back in the time when we were going to school around in um, Rose Prairie and Fort St. John area. There was no program for knowing who the beaver people were. It was all about, you know, the West Coast and Native people with their totem poles. It was all about the, the Sioux Indians and their war with the Calvary. And uh, it was everybody else, but we were just considered dirty Indians and no good for nothing. That kind of mentality was around here. Mm-hmm. So... You know, we had to say, okay, but what is our story? What is our history? And so we were really starting to look back into it. And one of the things that was really consistent in my life is my grandpa was a songkeeper. So I've always been exposed to that ever since I was a little kid. And they always got to do tea dances and got together with the commu- other communities to sing these dreamer songs. So I always went to those events. So then I started organizing those things, and I guess one of the things that people really wanted to hear those songs, and Robin Riddington, who who was an anthropologist that documented a lot of the, the old-timers in the 60s, 60s and 70s, had a lot of these tapes that he recorded them. And I had a conversation with him, and I says... Uh, he said to me, he said, you know what, uh, we have a problem here because there's so many requests coming from all these communities to get copies of the tape. But every time I'm copying it, we're losing the original context and I'm just afraid one day it's going to break. Mm-hmm. We need to do something about it. Like we've got to digitalize it and make CDs out of them. So that's the day when the CDs was, was, was a very popular way of transmitting music. So that was my one of my first tasks to get find the fun, funds for to do it, mm-hmm. and and then create this production so that we can start bringing that back to the community and distributing it. So um, I managed to pull that off. So as a program director, so your position was is program directing for culture specific, like you're a cultural program director essentially essentially that was my that role, was yeah. your is your role and you you kind of still do that now with doig right a little bit like you are a counselor but you are in a lot of um programs you do have some say in these things as well you're not doing it full-time like managing all the programs going on because there's a specific department with doig for that but you do have a say in these things and what's being brought to the first nation as well right and what programs you guys are doing yeah i would say i have some influence mm-hmm. on creating the vision mm-hmm. and making sure that we continue the path of what what the community wants. Mm-hmm. So it's always about what people want to know about, to what they want to bring in. 
So that's that's been always seems to be my like and I look back at my storyboard here and that seems to be very consistent in my life throughout time that the culture is influencing mm-hmm. the way I carry myself out in the world and influ- and create programs and whatever I need to do to Is there any point in your journey where you fought back against the culture in terms of like maybe if you're in the city and you really or just was there any point where you were trying to get away from it essentially or has it stayed there your whole life I think it's always been there okay yeah uh, when I look back at it and look at some of these artworks and things that I've created um, it's always been there I think it was it's just this special energy that comes and in my mind in my dreams um, like even this canvas piece, you know, um, there's something happening here. I know it's about energy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really kind of tapped into that kind of thing, you know, just a subconscious mind, I believe. Mm-hmm. Something Sound, sounds something like that. Because yeah. you come from, and I know we've talked about this before, um, you come from a line of dreamers. Is that yes. correct? So that, you think that's kind of a part of it? It's just a part of you being through the, in that lineage? I believe it is. Okay. I think it's a part of the things that you're just kind of born with and, and it's part of your DNA. And, and you know, I'm just lucky to have that, you mm-hmm. know. Like, I didn't ask for it. Yeah. It's, it was just part of my own. You were born with it, yeah. right? So for those listening who don't know, what is a dreamer? Um, a dreamer is more like a prophet or um, a holy man, spiritual leader. Um, they have the ability to to really be in tune with their dreams. And in their dreams, they can do astral travel. I guess that's the only way I could describe it's it. It's going into like different planes of existence, right? Yes, is yes. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and they have the ability to control it and and... Again, it's like a gift. Mm-hmm. You can't, you can't just become a dreamer. Yeah. You can't just become an artist. You can't just become a singer. It, either you're born with it or not. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, obviously, it's part of my family uh, linkages that that we're still doing it. Mm-hmm. We're creators of our own um, expressions of life. So we're we're back at when uh, you got elected a chief. Um, at what point did you pick back up the drum again? Was this when you came back? Or not again, but you were telling me a story before we went on recording about your mentor and about your family, like your, your grandfather, your great-grandfather, um, being drummers, carrying on these stories of dreamers. When did you pick up the drum? Whether it be again or was it the first time, right? Cause did you do it when you were younger? I guess I didn't ask that. Yeah, like uh, Grandpa... Uh, made me drums when okay. I, when I was younger. So. so your first drums came from your grandfather. Yeah. Then. Okay. And I re- I recall back in when I was a kid that he used to. Uh, um, okay. Uh, he. Uh, oh, oh, what jene? What jene means? Let Let's sing some songs. So he would sing songs, and then I'll be sitting beside him or laying beside him, drumming, copying him, and every once in a while I get. Offbeat, and then he'll give me an elbow. Hey, stay focused. <laughs> so I learned how to really stay present mm-hmm. to those, to the sound of the drum and the beat. So that I think that really kind of 
shaped my way of thinking about that. Um, but I was 28 years old when I first came back, and that's when I, a story I told you about Tommy Itachi yep, and Tommy Grandpa. Itachi. They were at the Friendship Center in Fort St. John uh, doing drumming songs for an event. And I walked in, and he said, oh, I haven't seen you in a long time. You see these drums? They're just laying here. What are you going to do about it? But before you answer that, I want to tell you, your grandpa and his grandpa and his grandpa and his grandpa used the drum. So what are you going to do about it? <laughs> so he, I just smiled at him and said, I'll sing with you. So, you know, I, I apprenticed under him for over 20 years. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that's a great experience um, to really understand, you know, what a song keeper is mm -hmm. and the role of the drummers and the roles of songs within our community today. It's very, very strong. People want it all the time. Um, it, it, it holds spiritual spaces for people, especially when it comes to, you know, uh, a death in a community. Everybody wants to have a tea dance and celebrate the person's life through honoring that person by dancing. And um, today, that's what we do. Mm. We, we hold that spiritual space for communities and make sure that that's our foundation of all the things we do. Opening up a ceremony, opening up an event to provide spiritual blessing for the people that have come and for the vision. Mm. So that's why we like doing it because it deals with the space, the spiritual context of it, and also the vision. Because whenever somebody hosts an event, they have a vision that the people that come to that will have a positive experience. That the things that they wish for, you, they dream for, can become true. They, that will come forward. So that's that's. I think it's a it's a interesting way of looking at life mm -hmm. that everything we do we have to not only in our minds um, acknowledge it in our minds but also it's part of the dream what's the vision what is the goal that we want to achieve with that event or with that time we always got to have a vision so that we have something to look forward to something to work towards and really that's an empowerment of self empowerment of communities, empowerment of people to make sure that the things we do is done in a good way for a positive results. So those songs reflect that vision. So your song choice for that moment, and you, you do choose the songs, right? Or does it just come to you in that moment? Sometimes we we choose, okay. uh, like say a prayer song. If it's a very specific thing, yeah, like, to what the event or yeah. whatever it is, it would be specific to. Um, but that when people come together, it creates its own energy, right? And we pick up that energy. And then, we'll, you know, we'll, as we open up and start drumming, that song will show up. So a lot of times that's how we do it. It just, the, the right song seemed to show up at the right place in the right time by opening up your consciousness to that to that environment. So, but very sometimes people would say, you know, please sing this sp specific song mm -hmm. and then we'll do with that. If you're being asked to do an event in Fort St. John, let's say for instance, the Festival Plaza, um, 
when it was the grand opening and you guys are asking to come drum, just as an example, what do you guys do? Do you guys, I guess, put in any research into the project before accepting to come and do a song? Like, what are the requirements for you guys to come in and drum? Um, I think it's just, uh, we try to uh, accommodate every request. Okay. Right? So a request really is it's an honor. So when somebody uh, requests you to come to do a drum song, that's a very honorable thing. That's the highest level of honor, honor and respect mm-hmm. that they say, hey, you know, we need you to come and open this thing for us because we want to make sure that it's in- inclusive with mm-hmm. the local community, honoring the tribal people, our ancestors whose land that we're on. And it's just a good way to do it. Like, and, and then when, uh, when people ask us to do that, uh, especially when it's a funeral, uh, we, we try to make, 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 our, make our space to, that we go there and do it. So drumming is really, it's, it's very spiritual. Like song keepers, it's, it's very spiritual in nature. Um, is there any time that you would deny going to go into to drumming at all? Like, would there be a scenario where you would have to deny it? Or well, has did, there been? Um, not, not very often. Okay. Not very often, but you know, t- we're, we're just we're just getting tired. Mm-hmm. Uh, either there's a conflicting thing going mm-hmm. on with something at the community versus going out out of the community. Mm-hmm. Uh, our party is always the community first. Yeah. Right. So if there's too many things happening, uh, we would have to just say uh, we can't make it this time. And, and a lot of people understand that. You know, we're we're in high demand lately. So. Yeah. Well, and, and my thing too, and, and tell me if I'm off, off base here, Gary, but I'm just very curious about it. With the time we're living in now where, you know, everyone is – everyone I speak in with organizations and businesses, they're very more mindful of um, indigenous incorporation and, and what they're doing. Are you ever worried that it's just checking a box, like that some businesses might just like kind of bring you in to – to have you there and, and say that, oh, hey, we're we're um, we're working with indigenous communities. Look at us, or is that not in your brain? Is that just a negative way of thinking? And I'm I'm just very curious about that. Uh, I I personally think sometimes it's just box checking. Okay. And however, uh, I think uh, everybody's becoming more conscious and aware that is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. So uh, most people are very sincere that when they do invite us over that they do want uh, inclusion of the community to make sure that, uh, you know, the, the local tribes are, are recognized and, and honored. And I think that uh, it goes for um, all the work that we've been doing. We've been doing a lot of work educating people through cross-cultural training, through the businesses mm-hmm. and participating to let people know, hey, we are here. You know, our ancestors have been here for thousands of years, like the Tsekwa, for example. We're turning that into a cultural heritage, you know, world-class cultural heritage center for education and learning about, mm-hmm. you know, history of this place and the land. And um, most people are becoming aware that it's that's it's legally required anyways, like in some cases where, like, for example, the recent case of the Yahe case that, that uh, requires uh, companies and government to con- consult with the local tribes 
about their treaty rights, mm-hmm. the impact to that. So um, that has become a lot more public and also the, all the work that we've been doing, doing the public relations and then also inviting people to Doig Days, which mm-hmm. has been going on for 35 years. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think too, just going off of my last question of, I think maybe initially in some cases, and, and this is just an assumption, and, and, and just from me talking with um, people in different businesses and organizations, it might come off in the beginning as like a check in the box, but then that maybe the relationship starts and then people start to realize the importance of, you know, us all being treaty of the importance of the communities, um, outside of Fort St. John with Doig, with halfway, what, how that we're all together, right. That, that we're all a part of this journey together on this land. And I, I think, you know, you see that with, you know, certain people from, again, these organizations and businesses, they're not just asking for the drumming and then not talking to you guys again they're going to doig days they're going to um i think i said this wrong last time the kema experience kema 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 Kema. a pure place in nature pure place in nature kema experience um and you you see people constantly take this in you don't do that if you're just checking a box you you don't actually immerse yourself in these things if you're just checking a box so with that being said also coming out of it through all these years of of you talking with different organizations and different businesses and different communities, what's your overall view of where we're at right now um, in the the peace country to how we were when you came back when you were 28? Oh, my. What a difference. (laughs) Yeah, I I would assume. I would assume. (laughs) Yeah. Today, um, you know, the nations are are big economic power. Mm Mm-hmm. We have economic power, and we can, you know, we're creating businesses, we're creating uh, Nachi Commons, the urban reserve, where we're building business partnerships, and um, I think, I think overall, people are realizing, hey, we're all, t- we're all here. Um, if we help each other, um, I think we're going to go. Everybody will benefit, and I think that's the value and the principle of our, our indigenous way of being, the beaver way of knowing, is that uh, that means people help each other. And when you are thinking in that context, it's not about just me, me, me. You know, so even the business models, uh, most of the time it's uh, individuals that want to do their own business. It's all about what they can get. So the capitalism model of I want to get as much as I can for myself, and that's it. Whereas the model that we're talking about is more, what can we all benefit? How can we benefit each other and help each other be the best we can, right? So I think that that model, because of the craziness going on in the world, Mm -hmm. I think people are focusing back to the true roots of what it means to live in a small town, a small communities. What does it really mean when we're all together? Right. If we help each other, everybody benefits. And I think that's the model that, that we're harnessing and mm-hmm. developing as we move forward. This year especially, there's been some uh, events, as an example, the Treaty Land Networks and, and the situation with the PRD, um, where I've heard people say that 
there is, um, you know, there's so much progress and now we're taking steps back and then there's this division. And in my personal opinion, I, I, I disagree. I think it's a moment in time and it's, it's a very negative moment, but it shouldn't give away to the progress that's been made in the community. Would you agree with that? Like, because also, yes, you had the meeting with all those people, but it was only really a couple people. I would say, you know, out of the huge group that was there that was yelling or chanting specifically mad at the PRD and not the First Nation communities and the Treaty Land Networks as a whole, because I think they didn't understand it. I think they just felt that the government was um, not being open with them or communicating with them. But then to hear that it's taking a step back in relations with First Nations communities and just the public in general... I think it's only, again, a small amount of people, whether it be on Facebook or whatever, that might be saying that. Do you think we've taken a step back or that there's been a division at all over these past? Because like, I also look and in, in hearing from you and other leaders in First Nations communities of, of the, the, the trauma you guys are dealing with with the past. And that doesn't seem to all those things that have happened in the past don't seem to compare to, to a moment like that where there's a treaty land networks like it might be. Um, something that you take as like, oh, well, this isn't good. This, this isn't great for us. But do you see it as a step back at all? Uh, no, I don't. I mean, it's just, it's just a bump on the road. Yeah, a learning experience, yeah, right? Yeah, it's a learning yeah. experience. And I think it is, you know, sometimes the government do, uh, are still in the silo context. Mm -hmm. And that causes problems when you're not open and, and be clear about the communication of what's going on. And as, you know, years and years of working with, uh, negotiating with the government and, and trying to settle our claims and those type of things, the bureaucracy is, is where the problem is. Bureaucracies where it's siloed and people have uh, limited knowledge to certain things and they don't pull it together to create, okay, here's the picture. Here's what is going on. And I think with the, uh, with, you know, some of the people... There's only a handful of them yeah, that are. Yeah, uh, I do believe that too. Uh, you know, want to. I don't know where their their mind is mm -hmm. because obviously they're twisting facts and information and getting people riled up for no reason. We've never ever said that we're gonna go and just hunt anywhere. No. We never ever did. We we deal. We've been dealing with that for years. Where there's signs that say "stayed out, private property." steel gates and that time where we can't even access our own traditional territories mm -hmm. and it's become so bad that it's very very hard to be out in the land like where our land is and we're just saying hey you know what we have a lot of friends in in around the peace country that phones up phones up and say hey you know what i have a problem with these elk eating up my hay we know that you guys got treaty rights and you guys can go and uh, you know harvest some of them so Help, help me with, with a problem that they got. Or, you know, hey, uh, driving down the road, there's some cows out. Hey, uh, get a call and say, hey, your, your cows are out. Oh, thank you very much. You know, so that's how people help each other. It's literally a network. You just described, like, the whole pro. Yeah, I, I, I was just all confused with it, too, because, I mean also you can google it right like it's it's being practiced in saskatchewan it's it's something that makes sense to me is so you're saying this is something that's already been done you were just trying 
essentially the communities were just trying to make this a bigger opportunity because there might be landowners that don't know about this. Like, hey, let's let's create this, you know, on paper, this sort of network so that we can communicate, right? Well, we have a, from the council table, uh, we have a, what do we call a good neighbor policy. Mm-hmm. A good neighbor is the one that helps, looks after, uh, you, you know, watch your back. Mm-hmm. If you got a problem, you know that even if you're out in a country road and you break down, people are going to stop and help you. You know, I see that happening all the time. It's happened to me. I've I've stopped and people and they need to help and uh, we help them out. Good neighbor policies have shown respect for one another, and I think that's the main thing. It's about respect and and if uh, people have properties, well, nobody's just going to go there and say anything. Uh, you got to go and talk to the neighbor and become friends and invite them over for uh, you know our rodeo and and you, you'll see if you come to our rodeo you'll see a lot of the local people come mm-hmm. participate. I oh, even seen at Doig Days, which is specifically for the school district. You'll you'll see adults there. Some I know some parents that will just join up to to become I guess. Um, I forgot the word for it, but just to take care of the kids, they'll come just so that they could come to Doig Days. Absolutely. Because they love it or they were there when they were a kid and then it's cool to go again as an adult and see their kid there. You know what I mean? There's generations now mm-hmm. coming exactly. to Doig Days. And we have a lot of friends. We have a uh, great relationship with companies that, uh, you know, that we just got a you know huge donation given to Tsequan from one of the companies. Yeah. Right? That's, the, that's being a good neighbor. To help one another move up and whatever you, whatever we need, because I know if there's a problem, uh, in any any of the tribes uh, or local farmers, uh, we just want to make sure that uh, there's respect happening, and and if they have uh, things that like artifacts and things on their land, we like to get it back. You know, I know some people don't want to say anything about it, but uh, because they think the natives are going to reclaim that land or something. No, that's not the case. Like, for example, we have uh, the Donaldson collection from the Kitskatnar area there. Mm-hmm. Over a thousand artifacts was returned back, things that we would have never known about. But this farmer, you know, decided, hey, you know, this belongs to the indigenous communities. Yeah. I want to give it back. So we went over to his farm, a big load of elders and communities, and we honored him. We had a big, you know, uh, barbecue with him, and we honored him, and... And now he's part of our story, mm-hmm. right? So that's that's what we got to look at. How do we how do we create a story together, where we have shared knowledge, shared resources, to help each other to make sure that that uh, the things we want to dream about and to implement is going to happen. And you know that, based on my experience of the world, um, there's all these, all these amazing stories and people that I've met along the way that help guide mean to be what I am and now that you know, I'm getting to in the age of eldership I still don't consider myself an elder yet <laughs> but even though I'm 63 now, <laughs> I'm getting up there um, I still got a few things to learn more mm-hmm. and I, I my job is to give back to the community how how do I do that how do we make a best place for the future generation to to be inspired to do great things and I think if all of us did that, we would be on what Joseph Campbell talked about. The, the journey and the stories that we create is, is our mythologies. It's our way of being, 
how are we going to empower ourselves and share our gifts with the community so that everybody benefits from it. I hope you enjoyed the first part of a two-part episode with Gary Oker. We're going to have the second part coming out next month. Lots to learn from Gary. A lot of stories he has to tell. A lot of information. He's a, he's a wise guy. He likes to tell stories, as you may notice. And I'm really excited to have a two-part episode and really get to, to know him and talk to him some more and ask him a bunch of questions. But before I let you go, before you get on with your day or your evening, whenever you're listening to this if you have any guests that you want to hear from on Before the Peace, reach out to me. Before the Peace at energeticcity.ca or Before the Peace at moosefm.ca. You can also hit us up on Instagram at Before the Peace or Twitter at Before the Peace underscore. I can't wait for you to hear next month's episode with Gary Oker. Part deuce. Make sure you're listening and tuning in. Thanks for listening to this energeticcity.ca podcast. Energeticcity.ca is your only local and independent news in Northeast BC. To help keep us independent and to support this podcast, go to energeticcity.ca slash join.